remain standing for the reading of God's Word today. We're in Genesis chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses 1 uh, through 25, actually. This is God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Amen. Let's be seated together. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me this morning? Father, we dare to approach you in prayer by Christ's authority, 
It is by His shed blood and resurrection that we can boldly seek You without fear of judgment. We have acknowledged Your greatness, Your glory, Your worthiness today. We have confessed our sin. We have asked for Your forgiveness and thanked You for granting it. Now we obey Your Word and bring our needs to You. You tell us in Your Word that we have not because we ask not. Lord, we ask You to provide for us and to bless us, not, Lord, for our own comfort, for our own contentment as such, but for Your kingdom work to be accomplished in us and through us. Lord, as we look around us, we see a world that's in great despair, much turbulence. Grant us peace. Bring rest to our communities. There's simply too much violence and senseless killing. Our society is failing greatly to protect all ages, but particularly our young. Many are clamoring for legal protections and laws that will allow us to kill the unborn. Many seem indifferent to the drug abuse and destruction that follows after it. Daily, our children are being gunned down in inexplicable ways. We are uncivil toward one another. We're self-absorbed and filled with greed. God, have mercy on our society. Convict and compel the church to take up these challenges. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunities that you've given us as Milton Community Church. This morning, we think about and pray for those that have gone out from our midst, the D family, the S family, the F family, who have obeyed your call, your instruction to go to the nations with the gospel. We pray that you will bless them. Even as we pray for them now, Lord, may they sense your power and presence. Equip them. Protect them. Use them mightily for your kingdom work. Lord, we pray for Morningside Church in the Buckhead area this morning. It's a privilege for us to partner with this church as it replants and seeks to revitalize in a strategic part of our city. As we invest in them financially, we pray that you bless our gifts, that you would multiply them and meet their needs, that you continue to provide resources to help them become strong in number, and that you would use them in that community to proclaim the gospel powerfully. Lord, Milton Community Church exists to make your name known here in this community and around the world. I thank you this morning for each and every member you have added to this church. All the abilities, the gifts, the skills, the passions, the personalities that make us uniquely yours. We pray that you might make us faithful to the gospel in every way. That this will be the foundation and impetus for our passions. Lord, use us to change our community, even our world. Bless our work. Supply the resources we need for the work before us. 
Frankly, Lord, our offerings have been rather lethargic this year. We've worked hard to ensure our stewardship is faithful of all that you entrust to us. We've labored to ensure that we are efficient and effective. We pray and ask you to give us what we need to achieve your work, that we might be more fruitful, that we might take up more opportunities. I pray that you will speak into all of our hearts and instruct us. Tell us how you want us to steward the blessings that you've entrusted to each of us. Strengthen our commitment and faithfulness to giving. I pray that your supply, Lord, will be so abundant in the days to come that we will have to search for new opportunities to use it all. Now we pray that you might give us ears to hear you speak. You've been preparing our hearts, Lord, all week for this moment. I pray that you remove every distraction, that you will give us a focus that's laser fixed upon you and only you. Guard these moments, for they have eternal significance. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue, actually, sort of an introduction. These early chapters of Genesis provide an introduction for us. There's a lot of unknown here. There's a lot that is told us, but there's a lot that's hard for us to comprehend because no one was there when this all occurred, right? There was no one there that saw, that can collaborate, uh, confirm what God has done and said. We simply have to trust, and that's hard for us, to put ourselves out there and completely trust what God says. I was reading recently that American evangelicals' grasp on theology is slipping. It's slipping rather quickly. A survey that I was looking at that was done last year said that over half, over half of the people affirmed heretical views of God. This survey, which was released by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway, Lifeway Research, and it said that U.S. adults are moving away from the orthodox beliefs of God and His Word. 53% now believe Scripture is not literally true. It was 41% just eight years ago. So a 12% swing just in the last eight years. Now, researchers call this the clearest and most consistent trend that they've seen in some time. They wrote this, and I quote, This view makes it easy for individuals to accept biblical teaching that they resonate with while simultaneously rejecting any biblical teaching that is out of step with their own personal views or broader cultural values. They gave five of the most common mistaken beliefs held by evangelicals. The first is that Jesus isn't the only way to God. 56% of evangelical respondents affirm that God accepts the worship of all religions. This indicates a bent toward universalism. 
believing that there are ways to bypass Jesus in our approach and acceptance to God. Secondly, they believe that Jesus was created by God. Astounding numbers. 73% agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. This is a form of Arianism, a popular heresy that arose in the early 4th century. Thirdly, obviously, which follows after that is that Jesus is not God. 43% affirmed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Another form of the Arian heresy. Fourthly, the survey indicated that people believe that the Holy Spirit is not a personal being. 60% of the evangelical survey respondents believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. And lastly, humans aren't sinful by nature. 57% agreed to the statement that said this. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. In other words, humans might be capable of committing individual sins, but we do not have sinful natures. This denies the doctrine of original sin. Now, I'm confident that those survey results would not be evident in very large numbers among us here this morning. It's important though for us to understand how society and even other professing Christians think about these important issues, doctrines even, the foundations for what we believe in. At Milton Community Church, our mission is to love God, to love God according to His Word, to love one another by His grace, and to make disciples for His glory. Now, if we hope to fulfill this mission, it's essential that we understand the challenges that we face, the challenges that are before us, the stream that we're swimming up against. Genesis informs our beliefs in important ways. It is, as I said last week, the seedbed for virtually every important doctrine that serves as our foundation. Our understanding of these doctrines affects our worldviews, the lens through which we see and understand the world around us. Well-intended Christians, well-intended, honest Christians struggle to agree about Genesis' creation account. So today, and maybe for the next week or two, we're going to kind of use this umbrella question. How should we, how should Christians think well Think carefully and well about creation. How should we think about these things? Is it important that we think about them in a certain way or not? There are lots of ideas and theories and controversy surrounding these early chapters of Genesis, the creation account. It can be very personal and it can get emotional for some people, maybe for you. We spent time last week discussing five aspects of creation. We talked about its cause. We talked about the vastness of creation, its expanse. We talked about its chronology, that it's ordered and planned and not chaotic or random. We talked about its purpose, that it's for God's plan and glory. 
And we talked about the Redeemer. Before creation began, a covenant was put forth by the Godhead to redeem what would end up being a fallen creation. So there are numerous, numerous ideas and theories about it that shape worldviews. All these things. How do we think about creation? How, what do we mean when we say worldview? Let me just give you kind of a working definition. A worldview is a particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. It's the lens through which we see and think about this world. It's a collection of attitudes, of values, of stories, and expectations about the world around us, which inform every thought and every action. In other words, everything we do is affected by how we view the world, how we understand the world. It's a comprehensive conception or apprehension of the world, especially from a specific standpoint. Now, creation is described in these first two chapters as occurring in days, just to take this as an example. As occurring in days, this becomes a, um, a point of controversy for a lot of people. Everything, you see, when you think about this, why is it so controversial when we say that God created in six days? We start jumping to all of these conclusions that that must mean something different than what it says. So why is that? Well, most people in church history have viewed these as literal days. Most. That's not to say that you can't find a few extremists out there throughout history that may have uh, moved off course, moved off center of believing that. But most people have taken these to believe to be literal 24-hour days, at least until you get to the 19th century. When you have the rise of Darwinism ushered in this idea that great spans of time were needed in order to make things happen the way Darwin suggested that they happen. Modern paleontology, the discovery of fossils, beginning to try to date those things, trying to understand those things. Modern human anthropology, what makes us human, and archaeological anthropology, the study of past human cultures, have all affected the way that we view these events described in Scripture. And as science has ventured down this road, evangelicals have tried to harmonize the six days of creation with these great spans of time. Lest we be accused of being ignorant or not with the times, not up on the things going on. Now, there are several theories that abound out there. I just want to run through these, give you kind of a working knowledge, I hope, that you can take this and file it away somewhere, but at least it gives you a little context for why these things are important. There are those out there that advocate for something called the gap theory, the gap theory, which suggests that there is a large gap of time between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 2, that what we see beginning in verse 2 is actually a recreation. It's not the creation. It's suggested in some instances that there are even gaps between the days mentioned here. So whatever God created in a day was followed by some long period of time. 
If he spoke light into being and separated light from darkness, then that might have been followed by eons of time before he created something else. Then there's the day-age theory. The days of Genesis are not considered to be 24-hour days, but long eras or epochs. And this was formulated to accommodate these ages with modern science. The structure of six Genesis days actually bears no no relationship to what science advocates. Making these days vast spans of time uh, still fails to harmonize science and creation. Then there's the literary day theory. The most prevalent view of this is called the framework hypothesis. And what this suggests is that the days of Genesis um, are nothing more than a literary device used by Moses for communicating spiritual truth. So there's no, no textual evidence for this in the Scripture. To make it work, you've got to import certain assumptions in here about Genesis 1 through 11. And then there's the revelatory day theory, which means basically that the days listed here are the, are the schedule by which God revealed to Moses the story of creation that it had nothing to do with how God actually created. And then, of course, you have the 24-hour day theory. And uh, just in the interest of full disclosure, this is the one I hold to. I take the Scripture at face value that what God said days, He meant days. And if He had wanted to say something else, He would have said something else. Now, I want you to hear me say this. Science is valuable, and it's valuable for lots of different reasons. None of us are arguing against that. The Bible does not claim to be a book of science, but where it does speak to science, it does so perfectly, and I believe that with all my heart. And that's true of any subject, geography, math, whatever it may be. If God speaks to it, He does so clearly and perfectly. While the Bible is much more than just a textbook on particular subjects. Now, there is an old saying that I think is worth remembering. It says that he who marries the spirit of this age will be a widow in the next. Because things are always changing, always changing. No one anticipated that Darwin's theory was going to get the legs, if I can use that, that illustration, um, will get the legs that it has gotten. Why is that? Why is that so? So, this morning, as we look at this, I want to also let you know that um, the text that we're looking at, Moses is generally regarded to be the writer. God is the author, as he always is with Scripture. But Moses also brings certain things to the table as he's writing the text. And it's important for us to understand and own that. There are major tense. You know, if you have a pair of sunglasses, if you wore them this morning, you could still see where you were going. You could still see objects out there and hopefully clearly, but the tinting on your lenses affected the way you see, doesn't it? If you put on uh, dark green sunglasses, you're going to see things in a darker hue. If you put on those, some of those bright orange or yellow ones, you're going to see things with that tint aiding your vision. 
And the same thing is true when we look at this text. There are three particular things that tent our view according to Moses' writing here. First of all, there's Noah's flood. Noah's flood. If you read through Genesis, it's plain that major changes occurred after the flood. The pre-flood world and the post-flood world are different. We can't explain it all, but it's clear that there are some changes that took place after the flood. Secondly, you have the fall. We all see by looking through the lens of brokenness and by sin. We just can't, we can't not do that. We can't see through the lens of perfection and righteousness. And then thirdly, we see through the lens of the sixth day. As I mentioned earlier, when Moses spoke about the first five days, there was no one there. Only God. Only the Godhead. What we have is Moses' account received from God. He reveals to us as days in conjunction with our own experience. God uses this terminology, understanding how all of this was going to play out, and yet he used the day to describe the time frame in which he goes about doing his work. So how God describes the making of creation. That's what we're looking at here in this chapter. How does God describe what he did? And he does it with a sweeping motion. If you try to unpack all the details, there just aren't any details there. He gives us broad brush strokes. One scholar pointed out that there is a repeating pattern in the daily process of creation here. What, what does it mean? Well, I think that there's some clear things that we take away from it. And there's probably a lot of things that we don't understand about it. But here's what he says. Six things that revolve around this creation pattern each and every day. Let me give them to you. First of all, he offers an introductory word. And God said. Then God said. Clearly, as we said last week, God is the cause of what's taking place. This wasn't something random. This wasn't some, some combustion of gases that gathered together. But God spoke and things happened. Secondly, he gives a creative word. Let there be light. Let there be expanse. When God speaks, it's an active word. A creative word. Thirdly, we have a fulfillment word. And it was so. Every time God spoke, and it was so. And it happened. Fourth, there's a lordship word. God names the thing he has created. God said, let the light be day. The darkness be night. Then there is a commending word. In all but one day. Only one day he doesn't say this, and it was good. And it was good. God pronounces that it was good. And then six, there's a concluding word. And there was evening and morning. That's a standard chorus, if you will, that God shares through Moses. So thus God brings clear order and structure to creation. Not only in the daily pattern, but in the sequencing of days, we see God working again in a pattern. 
In the first three days, God forms creation. He separates, he forms, he puts things in place. And then in days four through six, he fills creation. So let's unpack that just a little bit this morning. God forms creation. He's initially preparing creation in order that he might fill it. So he's getting everything ready. Last week we talked about these materials that God began with nothing. He began with nothing. He created out of nothing. He created the resources, the materials, the matter, the water, all the stuff. God created these things. And it's as if he put it all on his potter's wheel. And then he began shaping and molding and putting things, separating things. And then he began filling things. Why did he do it this way when he could have done it instantaneously? That's what Augustine thought, that God just created everything instantly. He didn't need six days, and he didn't, but he took six days. I think it's clear that God's always instructing us. He's setting up and establishing patterns for the way that creation would function. Day one, light is created He separates light from darkness. Now think about light. Light is hopeful, isn't it? When you got up this morning, maybe it was dark. Some of you may have slept in a little bit and the sun was already up. But something about that sun popping up, isn't it? The brightness, the spring time of year. And doesn't it elevate your spirits a little bit? It causes us also to think about spiritual light. Spiritual light coming in to the dead and dark heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's not just doing things to be doing things. He's doing things with purpose. Purpose sometimes that we can't even relate to. And I think about the consummation of the ages there in Revelation 22, where it says there will be no more night, for in that final eternal city, there will be no sun, there will be no light of the lamp, because we won't need them, because God himself will be the light. Day two, he separates waters, putting an expanse between them, water above and water below. This is where things seem to have changed since the flood. That here in the beginning, it seems that God put water above some sort of a canopy. The, the words, the, the terminology he's using here, it's a firmament. Some of your translations will say a firmament. And the idea it brings is to, it's like taking a hammer and taking a piece of tin and flattening that tin out. That God put this firmament there And above it was water, and below it was water. He uses the same terminology in Job 37, 18. Can you with him spread out the sky strong as a molten mirror? It's apparently a thin but firm thing that separates water from water. Water from above and water from below. How did it change? Well, in Genesis chapter 7, we hear what happened when the flood began. On that day, all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven was opened, and rain fell from 
upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Not just from above, but from underneath. So the waters that God had suspended and put this expanse between came back together in that moment as if to start all over again. Isn't that what he did? Day three, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Let dry ground appear. This is the third separation, waters from the dry ground. So God has separated the waters above and below. Now he says, gather the waters in one place and bring land forth. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I know a lot of you enjoy going to the beach, don't you? Have you ever wondered, if you look at the beach, there, there's not much there, is there? Sand is not much of a boundary for the ocean. And if you've ever watched a video or uh, an account of, of uh, uh, some kind of a typhoon or a tidal wave coming in with that big wall of water coming in, and, and there's nothing there to stop it, is there? I mean, we put those sandbags and all those things out, we're trying to, trying to stop it from coming in, but we don't have much power over the oceans coming in if they want to. And yet, when God spoke everything into being, He separated the water from the land, put the water gathered in one place, and put the land there, and He put a boundary, just the beach, the beaches. Now, the water stays where it is because, simply because, not because of the beach, but because of the command of God. That's why I don't worry about the beach eroding or, you know, things growing or changing a little bit. I mean, ultimately, I understand God's in control, right? He's in charge of all this. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit, trees yielding seed. If you, today when you leave, if you look at this piece of property over here to my left, next to our property. About 15 years ago, that property was, there was almost nothing on it, no vegetation. There were a few trees around, but based upon what it looks like right now, it looks like a jungle over there right now. But I've got a picture in my office from a helicopter that took a picture of our property here, and that piece of property was just kind of barren. There's nothing there. Now, I've watched carefully during this time, and I've not seen one person, Craig's not been over there planting trees, nor has anyone been over there planting any vegetation. Yet, if you try to walk through it today, and I've walked through it a couple of times in recent years, it's covered up with vegetation. How did that happen? It's because God created everything with this reproducing seed in it. Things after its own kind, where God's constantly recreating all of the vegetation. It's amazing to me that all that information is contained in a seed, right? It's that garden planting time of the year, right? I don't know how many of you plant gardens. I try to do a little gardening on a small scale. But, you know, if I want to put, if I want to grow some green beans, I, I don't use potatoes. I don't use apple seeds. I go and look for the package that has green beans on the label. Now, sometimes things may get packaged wrong, and you could end up with something not in the package. 
or not advertised on the front of the package, something different. But if I want green beans, I have to put green bean seeds in the ground. And then they start growing. Mine are are up above the ground, just like this now. Same with okra. You have to plant the seed of what you want because it's going to reproduce after its own kind. It's not going to produce something different. Seed plants produce after their own kind. In fact, everything God has made does this. This is why, listen, I know I'm getting ready to swerve into big trouble right now. This is why humanity's uh, outlook on on sexual identity and gender and all this stuff is all absurd. It's like we stand before God and say, we understand that you're the creator. You made all this stuff, but you know, we don't like the way things are set up. We're going to do it differently. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Man's been trying to do that forever, and it just won't work. We're just causing ourselves more misery than we can begin to swallow. And I know you're going to take issue with me, but you're not going to change my mind. I'm just dumb. I just take it the way God said it. (laughs) Thank you for that. I appreciate that encouragement. Not many people get amen for being dumb. (laughs) Thank you, Ben. All right. He, He forms creation. He's forming this arena. This, this arena, this ground, that, this creation, and now he's going to begin to fill it. He starts putting all these things in it. God moves things into place that he's prepared for them. Day four, he fills the expanse of the sky with lights, separating day from night. Also, he says these lights will serve as signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And they give light upon the earth. Two great lights, and he sets them up, he says, to govern. One governs the day, and one governs the night. And the stars. (laughs) This just blows my mind. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the the solar system that we live in, right? And I, I shared with you just how massive, how vast it is. And the size of the stars, we talked about one star that's, that's the same diameter as our entire solar system that's out there. It's just amazing to me to think about that. And God is filling his creation, and this is what he says. He's creating life. He's creating seeds that bring forth life. And he creates the sun and hangs it in the sky, and he creates the moon. And God says then, oh, and just as an afterthought, and all the stars. Millions and billions and billions of stars. And God, God gives them this short little statement. Oh yeah, and I created the stars. God treats them almost as an afterthought. Day five, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds and flying things fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Great sea creatures whales. When's the last time you checked out a whale? I'm not talking about those that we have down here in the, in the water, um, the, the water world place downtown, the water zoo, I call it. 
You've got, you've got some of these whales are 85, 90 feet long and weighing 400,000 pounds. Just huge, huge. And they're just out there frolicking in the ocean. And you think about the little small ones that are almost, you can't hardly see them with the naked eye. All these things God filled the, world, filled the ocean with. He's just swarms of living creatures in the water according to their kind. And he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas. Let birds multiply on the earth. In day six, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kinds. God made beasts of the earth according to their kinds, after their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. He doesn't do justice. We wish, I wish God would have given us another book, right? A big book, an encyclopedia that just says, this is how I did all this. And here are all the creatures that I spoke into being. But he doesn't. Why? Because this isn't the most important aspect of it from his perspective. He's going to open that up for us next as he starts talking about humanity, the crown of his creation because he sets his image upon humankind. Last week we talked about creation's cause and expanse and chronology and purpose and redeemer and today we've talked about some of the theories that man kind of conjures up to explain how creation occurred. And we've looked at how God formed and filled creation and what the information that he's divulged to us and then we'll start unpacking what God writes the story about is his relationship with humankind. But I want to circle back to the question I posed at the beginning. How should Christians think about creation? With all the controversies, with all the worldviews in play, how should we think in a healthy manner about creation? And why is it important? It's helpful for us to think in terms of first, second, and third order doctrines. What does this mean? Well, this means that some things are more important than other things. Some things there's no room for us to uh, disagree about, that we have to, take, we have to take it at face value. There are other things that we can afford to disagree about, and they're not going to compromise anything. Let me explain it this way. First order, first order issues are non-negotiables in the Christian faith. Without these doctrines, we compromise the gospel, we risk losing the gospel. Second order issues are important doctrines. They're influential issues that separate denominations and churches from one another. They don't separate believers and unbelievers. They separate Baptists from Presbyterians, Calvinists from Arminians, Covenantalists from Dispensationalists, etc. Third order issues are doctrines... Matters that have less effect on the gospel. So let me give you some examples here. First order doctrines provide the boundary between theological faithfulness and heresy. In other words, we simply have to believe in the Trinity. You can't have the gospel without the Trinity. You have to believe that Christ is God. He's not the first created being. He is God. He is eternal with God. 
If you compromise that, you compromise the gospel. Second and third order doctrines are where the wiggle room is. This is where we can agree to disagree. We can agree and disagree about infant baptism or believer's baptism. But we can still have fellowship together. We can still believe the same gospel, but not agree necessarily on when baptism occurs We can uh, disagree about the timing of Christ's return or the length of creation days. And we can still agree on the gospel. So what are the first order issues in Genesis creation account? What are the key things that are non-negotiable for us when we think about God's rendering of creation? Sam Imadi has helped us with this, I think. He's offered seven, seven non-negotiables, first order issues in the Genesis creation account. I'm going to give them to you real quickly. I'm not going to unpack them this morning. I'm just going to give them to you. Number one, we have to believe God created the world out of nothing, ex nihilo. God created the world out of nothing. There were no pre-existing materials when God began. Secondly, God is distinct from His creation. He's complete otherness, complete holiness, transcendence. God is not a part of this creation. God is distinct from this creation. Thirdly, God created the world good. Without brokenness, without sin. Fourth, God created the world for His glory. As Nathan read earlier from Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare God's glory. Five, God specially created Adam and Eve who both bear the image of God. God set His image, He said, upon all human beings. And we'll talk more about that next week. Sixth, Adam and Eve are humanity's first parents. This is where it all began. Acts 17, 26 said, He made one man from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God made all human beings from one man. And seven, Adam and Eve are historical figures who really disobeyed God in time and space, history, in the Garden of Eden. Now those are non-negotiables about creation. You can disagree with me and say, I don't think God did this in a 24-hour day. Fine. Fine. You want to redefine day? Have at it. But it doesn't, you can't change that God created. Because once you do that, then you start getting into calling God a liar. So, what do we do with this? Well, I think there are uh, three or four things I want to share with you here that you need to do in response or in application to this, how you take this and apply it to your life. Number one, we should all evaluate our understanding convictions regarding origins of all things. We we need to think about how we think about these things. Don't Don't just assume that what you learned in school is right. Don't just assume what you learned in church is right, but you need to be thinking about these things based upon truth that God has offered us. Do I accept and believe that God alone is creator? Do my beliefs compromise God's word in any way? In other words, am I in 
argument with God? Do I fear human judgment or ridicule for my beliefs? Listen, I've been called lots of things through the years because I believe a certain way. And I'm, I haven't, I'm no worse for the wear. It really hasn't hurt. Oh, it hurts your feelings a little bit at the time, but it hasn't really had a long-term impact. So it won't, it won't hurt you. Do my views weaken my faith in God and my worship for God? Is it so hard to believe that God spoke and created all there is? Is it harder to believe that than it is to believe in eons and billions and billions of years? I think not, but you may think so. Why is it easier to believe human theories than it is to believe God's Word? If God's Word cannot be trusted regarding creation's account, how can I trust it regarding salvation? If I can't trust God to create, as He says He does in Genesis 1, how can I trust God that He resurrected from the grave and that His sin sacrifice for us, His substitutionary sacrifice is sufficient for eternal life? Am I willing for God to work belief and faith into my heart on these matters? All fair questions, all questions we should be asking and answering for ourselves. I think this is the point. Why did God include the creation, what He's given us as His creation account for us to look at? It stretches our minds, does it not? It stretches our hearts and our faith. That's a good thing. I, to me, it's an encouragement. I think about the greatness and the vastness and the majesty and the power, the utter raw power of our God. Man, there's nothing. There's nothing that's too big, too great for my God. He's told us this in and of himself. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. And Lord, as we think about how you have shared your description of how the creation went down, how it all occurred. And yes, there are lots of questions that we want have answers for, but you have chosen not to give us those details. And that's all right. Lord, I, I want to lean into you and trust you and what you've said. And I pray that you give us all that uh, faith to lean into your description, into your word, and take you at your word. And that that would, uh, Lord, continue to uh, produce fruit in our lives as we live for you and serve you in this world. And Lord, maybe one day in eternity, you're going to share with us all of the details of the story that uh, now seem so far away or so difficult for us to understand and believe. But Lord, more than anything else, the thought that we get to spend eternity in the presence of such a great and mighty God. I pray that that would fuel our worship and our, our trust in you. Lord, for this day and for the day to come and for everything that we face in this world until it be consummated in your presence when Jesus returns. I pray for that person today who is trusting in themselves and in the things this world offers instead of you. 
And Lord, they need to repent of their sin and turn to you for forgiveness and salvation. Make it so today. Give them the faith to believe and to repent. Lord, make us the church you want us to be in this community and Lord, throughout this world. And we offer this prayer today in Jesus' name, amen.